0: to uh, share with you this morning. We may not have met. uh, If that's true, then I want to share just a little bit about myself so that you're not completely trusting the word of a stranger this morning, because that would be awkward uh, to hear someone preach to you and teach ...on the Word of God and you just take it without knowing the context of who you're hearing it from. For those of you who've been around for the last six years, then you can just take a nap for a couple of minutes... ...because I'm going to bore you, uh, because you may have already met me. My name is Chris Cox. I would define myself in a few ways. I would first define myself as a follower of Jesus. I'm very intentional about saying that first because it's the number one priority in my own life is to follow after Jesus, not to be a pastor, or a teacher, or a leader, or um, a husband, or even father. But the number one for me is to follow Jesus, and that's how I hope that I am defined in life. And so first and foremost, I want you to know that I'm speaking from a place of following today, not a place of leading or, aha, I already have this. But from a place of saying, this is where in pursuing Jesus, he's leading me, and maybe... Maybe we need to join in this journey together. Second, I would say that I'm a husband. My one of my greatest loves in life is to pursue the beauty of my wife in all circumstances, in all seasons, to protect her, to guide her, to stand next to her, to to lead, follow, and submit with her as we pursue Jesus together that that is uh, one of the greatest joys that I would love to talk about all morning, of how I've been able to see God through that journey and the greatness of what it is like to pursue my wife and to see her champion and the purpose that God has given her. And then I would say that I am madly overwhelmed with being Sonny and Brinkley's dad. My daughters are three and seven, and they're amazing. Most days I spend with Princess Glitter on my head as I go to work. They're awesome. It has totally shown me what being a man really looks like in the context of being a husband and a father with girls around all the time. It's my job to protect them, to mentor to father, to provide, to love, to discipline, to teach, to show them grace and compassion. And I'm also the director of a ministry called 121, which is part of a ministry that you may have heard of called Back to Back. I would love this morning And I've actually written several sermons on how to talk to you about what I want to talk to you about from the context of me being Sarah's husband and Brinkley and Sonny's dad. But there's a pastor in this church who has had a tendency to stand on this stage and tell his church that if he uses an illustration about his children that maybe they don't know about or maybe he hasn't really signed off for he pays them money cash money if he uses their story and his son Josh is friends with my daughter and so one day Josh Greer says hey you know what my dad pays me if he uses me in a story on stage and so Sonny comes home and says, "Hey, Dad, why aren't you paying me?" But she doesn't say it in an intimate moment between you know Daddy and daughter. She says it with Sarah and Brinkley there. So I would love to tell you about Sarah and Brinkley and Sonny, but I cannot afford it. It is way too expensive. Thank you, Jeff. So anytime I speak, no matter where I speak, if if the first thing that that Sunny says is not, how was it? She goes, did you talk about me in your sermon? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because there's a My Little Pony that I want. and I need some money. So her greatest job is to book me speaking engagements by which she is an object in the story. So after this sermon right now, she, I will walk out and she will say, pay me my money, because I just mentioned her. And after the first service, Josh Greer walked up to me and said, pay me my $10. However, I don't have a contract with him, so I think Jeff owes him some money. Um, I would love to tell you about these people that I love so much. There's something else that I love. I love it deeply, and it's, it's part of me. And that is resourcing emerging generations in this culture to live like Jesus with their hearts set on forever. I, I could probably remember, I think I would pinpoint it back to a moment when I was working as a camp director at the Lakota YMCA I was a college student, the games director. It was the greatest job ever, except for the pay. They pay you nothing. But I got to wake up every day and go to work to play soccer and dodgeball with kids. Soccer on the days that they were good, dodgeball on the days where they were not. It's a great reward. You just throw balls at kids. And they pay you for it. Not much, but it's rewarding in heaven. And I remember in these moments... Not playing dodgeball or soccer, but hanging out with these students, thinking, "Man, there's there's a freedom here. There's a joy here. There's an authenticity in generations that are coming behind us. There's a longing for something bigger, some grand story, and there's there's a willingness to dive in. There's a willingness to try things, and a want to taste. They want their life to move forward. They can't wait." To move forward. We know it to be true because we pray about it every night and we're scared to death of it. They want the car keys. And we're scared to give them to them. They want the prom date. We're really scared as dads for that one. They want to go to college. They want the mission trips. They want the experiences. Are you broke? Like you're weeping now, right? You're like, I know my baby. They long to be part of a story that's bigger than themselves, but oftentimes, as either older generations or an enemy that is in this spiritual warfare, there's this trying and efforting to stop them from moving. The goal of spiritual warfare for emerging generations is often, if I get them to stop, Then they won't move anymore, and momentum is done. We can reflect on that in our own lives, right? One of the hardest, If you watch a commercial, it would say that the hardest thing I think it's like an arthritis medicine or something that's out there. It says, the hardest thing to do is to get an object that is not in motion. To start motion. But if you have an object that's already moving, for moving the motion forward is easier. Once it starts going and rolling downhill, you just have to chase it. And a long time ago, I saw emerging generations as a group of people students and leaders and future businessmen and women and future pastors and future politicians, maybe. Future football players in the NFL, maybe. As people with momentum now that it might stop, boom, die, if we as the body of Christ, as the global church, don't figure out ways to champion and keep the momentum moving of these emerging generations. And as I was thinking about it, I was wondering, how do you move forward with a group of people so vast and different and changing as what we would call youth? It's always changing because who's in it is always changing. Remember that time you used to be one of them? Like, well, that was a long time ago. High school, ooh, maybe not want to remember that so much. Someone posted a high school picture of me the other day in a football uniform. <laughs> Do not know who let me cut my hair like that, but they, they were not smart. It worked out. I was single for sure. But I remember that time, I'm like, wow, high school football, those were the days. For me, that was the season of life where every day in school, I was practicing my autograph because I was going to be a professional football player. And God was laughing at me every day. He was like, I made you. You're going to be five foot five, man. You will not be playing professional football. Every morning, I'd be practicing my signature, and God would probably just chuckle and heavy, like, you're a dork. And under that signature in that season of freedom, and I could do anything, and it didn't matter how tall I was, I could still hit people really hard, and concuss myself every game that I played, and I could have this signature, and I could go pro if I wanted to, I was just reckless abandoned, and it was really interesting, because underneath my signature, I had this thing that I always had to do, and it was Chris Cox, and you can't read it, it's not legible, um, and if you've ever seen me sign anything today, it's not legible, but I had this really cool, unlegible, professional football signature, and underneath of it, I had to put a verse, because all Christian athletes put a verse under their signature, right? We didn't Tebow, we just wrote scripture underneath of it. And so I had Philippians chapter 3 verse 14 underneath. From the time I was in first grade until I was a college freshman, that was kind of my life verse. And it's the context of the conversation that Jeff has been bringing every Sunday here in this series called Forward. It's this idea that Paul is writing these words to his church saying, move forward. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love that verse because for me, pushing forward and movement was to my life. It was always a, I'm a task kind of person. Relationships are great if we're working together on something for me. And I always have to marginalize the, the task in order to validate the relationship intentionally in my life, because if we're not doing it together, I might forget that you exist. And it's a, it's a bad thing. I don't know why God wrote that onto me. I'm fixing it. But I love the verse because there's a pressing into, there's a movement. It's like, if we all push this thing forward together, if we all move, if we all go, if we're all pushing forward together, we can see the glory of God manifested through Jesus together. I love this verse. Let's press on together and let's move forward. And so I would sign my autograph with Philippians 3.14 because I'm pressing on to the NFL. And it never happened. It was the medium by which in high school I defined my life. I was living and breathing football. That medium changed though. When mediums in our life change, a lot of time our momentum stops. Because our message was defined by the medium by which we were living. And all of a sudden we've lost the message. Here's an example. Here's where, where, where we're going to land is this idea. Do you remember? Do you remember these? Yeah, cassette tapes. Some of you don't know anything about this. You, you, there's, there is no like playlist on here. Like it's, you can't swipe it to turn it on, and it doesn't come with an app. But this, this may have changed your life. This little thing right here, this could be the reason that your parents are married, because Dad figured out the art of the mixtape. Yeah, you know, you remember that before these, we had to either listen to the whole record or we had to try to make the 8-track work. And hopefully when we put the 8-track in, it would actually come out without ripping the whole stereo out of the dash of the car. That was my my dad tells me. I'm not that old. But there was this 8-track, you, but you had to listen to the whole thing. You couldn't mesh songs together. With the record, you couldn't mesh songs together. You had either the album, or you had the song on the album, or you then took the album off, and you put it back in the sleeve, and you kept it nicely, or you just threw them around your room. And then you put it back on, you got to put the needle, and you got to find the song with the needle. And the 8-track, you got to figure it out. And every time you pull the a track out, like the tape was not going to come in the plastic. It was going to come out inside the 8-track, and you're just going to be like, oh, no, all the 8 tracks tape's gone. And then someone had the vision to be able to say, you know what, this isn't working. We're not getting the message, the music, that we want out in the way we want to. Let's make an easier way that we can copy this music and get it out to the masses. And so they made the cassette tape. And then we all learned the three-finger method of play, record, and play. And so you put two cassette tapes right next to each other. You picked the song that you wanted, and then you went, one, two, three, whew. You remember that? Seamless. And at the end of the song, you would go, one, two, three, stop. Change the tape, put the next tape in. One, two, three, record. Yes, I'm awesome! Some of you are like, yeah, I did that like every day. We had these mixtapes, and now we have the opportunity to have all of our favorite music together. We could share the love of Ice Ice Baby with the world. Everyone knew who Vanilla Ice was then. Because we could take the only song that mattered on his tape and take it off and add it to other songs that we liked. Because no one else wanted to hear anything else from that, that tape. And we took music and people started sharing. And my uncle was a master at this. He had like two high quality recording a little studio set up in his apartment he was 35 and single so you know whatever um all he would do all day was make mixtapes for people and he'd bring like, you need to listen to this you need to listen to this I'm like what do you do all day he's like i just listen to music it's so awesome he's just handing out mixtapes to the world Before that, I don't know what they did before high school basketball games. I have no idea how you got pumped up listening to one song or one artist or just the band played the whole time. But now they started this mixtape. It's like this idea of, we can have our own playlist before a song. We can do all this stuff for dances. You can just give a mixtape to your parents to tell them you're sorry for wrecking the car if you want to. You can give a girl a mixtape and she can throw it at your face. Um, And you can have all of this stuff and music started to change. You might still use a tape deck though. Last I, I checked, everything I wanted is on here. I don't, that doesn't really work. It's kind of a waste. Now, what if, as technology progressed in our culture, as we saw all of this movement happen, what if someone had said, you know what? Music's just fine the way it is. We're good with cassette tape. You can be as digital as you want to, and you can have your Macs and your PCs and you can have all of your flat screen TVs, but music music is only heard well on cassette tapes. And so we must protect the cassette tape and only listen to cassette tapes for the rest of our lives, or else music isn't really authentic. We would just we'd lose everybody. Who's going to cart around an iPad and a tape deck? Some of you are like, my car still has a cassette tape deck. Pray over that thing. Um, if it's lasted you, just, like, just pray God's blessing over it. But because the message was bigger than the medium, then we could say music isn't defined by cassette tapes cassette tapes magnify the message of music for now but what if there was a better way oh we now have digital abilities well let's move into this thing called the cd and let that thing skip everywhere we go as soon as we go over a bump on the road for a while and tell the next generations why it's actually better than the cassette tape was and then after the cassette ta- or the cd works for a little while let's put it all on this thing called napster and let everybody have it for free for a while I remember being in college and walking in and a freshman said, hey, I've got this thing called Napster. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you should see a doctor about that. And he's just like, no, watch. And he walks me into his dorm room and he's just got like music just downloading. I'm like, where's it going right now? What are you doing, dude? And he's just like, I can give you anything that you want. Any music that you want, you can have it for free. And I'm like, here is a stack of CDs. Give me everything. I want it all. And then this guy named Steve comes out with this thing called an eye something. And the whole world changes and we're like, I don't need a CD, I don't need this, I, I can listen, I don't even have to know that music has become popular yet and I can have access to it because I can go seek it out and I can listen to it when I'm done with it I can just move on. And music has transcended the mediums to keep going. Would we all say that music still speaks to us? Yes, we use it in movies all the time. My daughters will not walk around singing anything, but do you want to build a snowman right now? Why? <laughs> because they saw the movie Frozen. Because the music transcends a message and the message is what we're rooted into. But if we had stuck with a medium that was outdated, we wouldn't be able to share that music with everyone around us that matters. And I would contend that one of the reasons that the gospel's not moving as far forward as it wants to and longs to and God's kingdom is supposed to is that we often put the gospel of Jesus in a medium that doesn't work anymore instead of lining up with the message within the context of the generation in which we're speaking. And then that means, that's not just generations that are emerging, that's our marriages. How often does the Bible look archaic versus everything else you do in your marriage during a week? The message of the gospel must be the thing that drives us forward. The mediums that we grew up with, we may have to give, give up every once in a while the methods that worked for our grandparents may not work today, not because they were bad methods, but because the culture has changed and shifted and the medium isn't relevant within the context of the current culture. And so we have to say, is there anything wrong with a cassette tape? No, but no one has cassette tape players anymore and no one's listening to anything on here. Therefore, we better find another way to share the message. This is the base of what the ministry that I'm so passionate about called 121 is. As generations emerge, how do we make sure that the message of Jesus is not lost in the mediums of the past and not stuck in the mediums of the present, but is freed to change the world of the future? And I think there's two key aspects of how that happened. If you want to look at this verse or underline it or circle it, it's Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, which is where our ministry called 121 comes from. The verse says, but for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Done. It's a really big verse. It's actually a few words And life transforming. You see, six years ago when I was questioning whether or not I was supposed to stay in local youth ministry in Xenia, Ohio. If you've never heard of that, it's okay. I've been there eight years as a youth pastor. I've been able to see God do great things through this student ministry, The church was going backward, though. The student ministry is going forward. And some of the leaders in the church were coming in, especially this new senior pastor was coming in and going, hey, um, I'm not sure that you're the youth pastor for the future. And I'm kind of going, okay, well, I'm going to let God discern that. And since you said it, maybe God is discerning that. And I went away to pray about it. And I came back and going, oh, wow! if you're leading this church, I'm not sure that you have the medium that's going to work for the generation I'm called to lead. And that makes me sad. I don't want to leave. We want to be here for life. But in that moment... I prayed with my wife and said, I don't just want to go do what we've been doing. The medium's changing. Where do we go? Really intentionally, who do we meet with? Because I don't want to just throw my resume out there and just go get another job and in three years be kicked out of that church too. Because we're too revolutionary or too visionary or too innovative maybe a good word for it. And she said, you should go meet with three people. And I'm like, all right. She's like, I think one of them should be Jeff Greer. See, Jeff was Sarah's youth pastor. Deb had mentored her through high school and through a lot of seasons of her life. And so I sat down with one of the three people. I sit down with Jeff Greer and say, he says, so what are you you passionate about? And I give him this big spiel on, I'm passionate about emerging generations, being able to share the gospel with the world. And I think that the box of youth ministry is just too small and we need to really be engaging in emerging students and leading them and showing them ways in which they can be the church now and that they're not just the church of the future, they're the church of today and that they can change things. And if we're just pouring into them and giving them the leadership tools and being able to for them to see the vision of what they're supposed to do. And if you've ever met Jeff Greer, you know, if you speak to him passionately like that, he's in. He's just like, what can I do with you? Let's go. Here we go. This is outside the box, and I like it. And so he's like, well, you should go on staff with back-to-back. Like, aren't they an orphan care ministry? Yes. But... Their DNA from the time that they were begun was not only to meet the needs of global orphans, but also to invest in the students of America here to be able to build into global ministry. That if we were handling our business in the United States well, we would be giving resources to orphan care ministries around the world nonstop. And so he had started this thing called Impact where high school students could gather that had shared interest and talk about the gospel and talk about life transformation. And he pitches this vision to me of what impact was. And as he pitches this vision to me, I'm going, sounds a lot like what I've been doing for the last eight years in Xenia. Maybe this is supposed to happen. Maybe I'm supposed to go do youth ministry for an orphan care ministry. That doesn't make any sense, but let's try it. And I'm like, So how are we going to do this? And he's, I don't know. We have a facility and we have some ideas and you could probably do all of these things. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do it either, but I'm in, let's go. And what we saw very early on was that while youth culture continues to change, the message of Jesus does not. And if we can hone in on the idea that life is Jesus, life is about living connected to Jesus, where Paul is speaking in this context of this verse, he is saying, to live is Christ, to live is Jesus, the mediums will change. And to Jeff's credit, years ago, as Impact was the only thing that was defined as youth ministry outreach for back-to-back, it he is now one of the resources that 121 is able to bring to the table, because he walked into a meeting with me and said, okay, so tell me about Impact. I tell him about Impact, and I'm like, okay, here's the Impact, it's going to work for a few students, here are the resources that could work for all the students around the world. And to his credit, instead of saying, well, you know what, I started Impact, and I think that Impact is the answer to the crisis of the world and youth culture and you should only do impact. He looked at me and said, I trust you. Jesus is the answer. And if all of these other resources that you're going to build are also part of the answer, do them too. Go for it. Unleashed. Have fun with it. So I'm like, all right, I think we should change the name of impact to 121 because what if What if we could raise up generations who said that their mantra, their their vision for life was to live like Jesus with my heart set on forever. There's two key aspects of that. And I would tell you this morning that that's not just for generations that are coming behind you. This is for you too. I've yet to meet a generation that's not being invited to define itself by Jesus With a perspective on eternity and not on a kingdom of today. So here are your two questions. Question one Is Jesus enough? When Paul pens these words, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he's imprisoned. More than likely, he's in Rome. And because he's in Rome for Paul, that means a choice for him. He's a Roman citizen. They don't know that. He can tell them, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. You're not allowed because I'm a Roman citizen. Or he can say, now's the time for me to be silent and take my sentence and let this life be over and dance with Jesus forever. We're not in the same spot right now. We're not in prison this morning. Some of you are like, I am, man, my marriage is, don't, that's not good. <laughs> don't go, there. If, if that thought crossed through your mind, talk to someone. You're like, my house is prison, my parents don't let me do anything. Totally different. This is not the same. Your life is not, maybe your life is being threatened. <laughs> but you're not sitting in a country with a government that absolutely detests and is actively trying to destroy your religion. We can have a lot of disagreements and a lot of understandings of politics in America, but we're not that. The last I check, if you wake up in the morning and you pray, you don't go to jail. Paul's in that circumstance, where he has to decide, do I want to say to live and to stay here in this persecution, in this moment, is only going to be the things of Jesus, or do I just add Jesus to the things of my day? And he's going, man, there's nothing left. The only thing I have is Jesus. Jesus is enough for me. I don't care if I'm in jail. I don't care if I'm in prison. I don't care if you stone me. I don't care if you crucify me. The only thing I want is Jesus. He's enough for me. He brings full satisfaction to me. Nothing of this world. So when he writes these words down, he's saying to us, here for me, Jesus is all that I need. The rest of it is a blessing if I get to keep it. But Jesus is enough. So this morning, the first question that we should ask is Is Jesus enough? And then, if it, the answer is no, in order to move forward, our answer is not if Jesus is not enough, I need to condemn myself for not being good enough for Jesus, for not being enough, being able to get enough done. But it's to ask What is it about Jesus I need to learn for him to be enough? You don't fix yourself and then move forward. Jesus shows you something that's so magnificent about himself, it's worth moving forward to. We don't look at our lives and say, for me to live is Jesus because I've fixed myself so much that now I can see that he's real. Instead, we look at Jesus and say, you're not enough. I need you to be better than my marriage. I need you to be better than my bank account. I need you to be better than my college football team. I need you to be better than this in my life. And Jesus, every time that you ask him to be better than something that you have to have in your life, I promise you he'll trumpet. The question is not, are we good enough for Jesus to say to live as Christ? The question is, is Jesus good enough for us, for us to trust him? There are a few things about Jesus that we can't reflect, but they give us the freedom to follow. We can't be all-knowing. He's all-knowing. Facebook has tried to help us become all-knowing. <laughs> you ever walked into a barber shop or the, your hairstylist and found like your hairstylist is now omniscient? as you sit down and she's just like, well, I saw you were just on vacation. What? Oh yeah, I posted 20 pictures on Facebook, you stalker. <laughs> I know some of you are like, I'm guilty. We try to know as much as we can about people, but we can't be all-knowing, but we can trust that God knows everything. He knows your circumstances. He knows your condition. He knows your sin nature. He knows your, his plans that he has for you. He knows the possibilities of your future. He knows how to resource you. He knows how to give you everything that you need. He knows how to be there and let you endure the pain and the suffering that you're going through right now. You can trust that God is all-knowing and that you're not. We're not omnipotent. We're not all powerful. We realize that on a daily basis. The older we get, the harder it is to shovel the snow. We don't have all the power in the world. But God does. Jesus does. And so if you're facing circumstances that are too big for you, you can trust that Jesus is enough in the context of your circumstances because he's stronger than anything that's holding you back even though you're not. Even though you don't have the power to fix it, He is all-powerful, which means the power to redeem and to fix anything that's broken around you dwells in God, and He has it for you. But we have to trust that we don't have it. We're not omnipresent either as illustrated to us by the number of selfies that our children take in front of mirrors to show us exactly where they are and what they are wearing. Hashtag. It's very easy to see that we're only here right now. Some of you are like, I'm tweeting from here right now. We have things now as apps, things like Foursquare, that show us exactly where we are and when we are there. I just checked in at Starbucks again. Because we can only be one place at one time, but God God is not present in only one place. Jesus is not only one place. He's in all places at all times, which means that while he is all-knowing and knows how to guide us, how to direct us, how to give us what we need, he is all-powerful to be able to provide everything that we need. He is also with us everywhere that we are, whenever we are there, and he's infinite He's not always present in one moment in time. He has always been and always will be. And we can't reflect those parts of him. But then through Jesus, he gave us some aspects that we can reflect. And these are the takeaways for us. We can practice his love. For me to live is Jesus. I love the Lord with all my soul, mind, strength, and heart. And I love my neighbor as myself because that's Jesus. We can reflect His holiness. Be holy as I am holy. We can pursue a holy, loving reflection of who Jesus is. For me, to live is Jesus. It's to live loving and to live holy. To me, to live is to live like Jesus, full of grace and truth. If I live love, if I live holy, if I live grace, if I live truth, then to me, to live is Christ. Those are the aspects of Jesus that we get to emulate not out of our own work, but because he is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and infinite, he can pave the way for us to be holy, loving, graceful, truthful people. That's what it means to live like Jesus. With a heart set on forever means that I don't have to get it all right today. It's not a judgment statement in Philippians 1.21. It's an invitation to say move forward today because your tomorrow lasts forever. You don't end. You're not infinite, but you're eternal. When mm-hmm. you confess Jesus and allow Him to be the all-powerful, all-present, all-redeeming God that He is, he may put a timestamp on your life on this earth, but he doesn't put a timestamp on you. We will not die. Our bodies will decay from this place and we will breathe our last here, but we will dwell forever in the presence of the Lord in his perfect place. Does your family reflect that? Are you pressuring your children to be perfect in a way that reflects eternity? or reflects a kingdom of today? Are you pressuring yourself at work that reflects a now and forever, or just a now? Are you pressuring your finances to get all in that you can today, or are you building them for a kingdom that never ends? Are you building your time and relationships with an all in now, or a I want to be with them forever? Perspective. This is the DNA of a ministry called 121. It could be your own personal DNA as well. But for me, it's given me the opportunity over the last six years to invest in some of your children, to help them navigate their path into God's kingdom. Did you know, Grace Chapel, that one of your students was at a church down the road two weeks ago preaching his first sermon? Yeah. He's going into ministry. He's decided to go to college and go into full-time ministry because Grace Chapel and 121 collided a few years ago, and he started... To hear the gospel and to see that he has a purpose in his life. And because he has that purpose in his life, he's called into ministry. And through his calling into ministry, he then calls me and says, Hey, I want to preach a sermon. I think that should be part of it. I've been interning at Grace Chapel for the last year. Can I preach? And so we worked for the last month on a sermon. And then, the great aspect of the story is I get to call a guy at Eastside Christian Church. It's on the two seventy. It used to be a big movie theater. And I call him and I say, Zach. I've got a student who wants to preach. He's a high school senior, and your student ministry. you have a spot for him to preach because he can come preach in front of his own friends here, but everybody's going to tell him that he did a good job here because they're his friends, or they may tell him that he's terrible because they're his friends. He needs to be- preach to strangers because that's hard. Zach's like, Of course. So Zach sets it up, and so two weeks ago, we go to Eastside, and as we walk in, Zach walks up on stage to his student ministry, and he's like, this is a very defined moment of a kingdom of now and not yet, because about 10 years ago, I was sitting in the audience at my student ministry, and my youth pastor, his name was Chris Cox, and he told me that the kingdom was in my hands, and that he would resource me to build his kingdom now, and now I'm the youth pastor at a church, and Chris is bringing a youth pastor from, a student from another church to come preach so that the kingdom keeps going. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm standing in the back going, hey, I forgot. You let me be part of this. Thank you. It had totally just kind of, I'm like, wow, that was Zach. Zach was in my student ministry. Zach's now a youth pastor. Zach's now bringing in Lucas to preach for him at this. Wow. Wow. I can't make that happen. I'm not all-knowing, but you are. There was a season in my life after I took this job at 121, and I was questioning everything. Real youth pastors work at churches. Real preachers have their own church and they preach every Sunday. Real kingdom builders can tell you how many people they saved that week. The list went on for me and I was a no to all of them. And I'd walked off of a a platform like this in my home church and an old lady had walked up to me and said, Someday you're going to be a good preacher. really bad thoughts came in my head that I did not say back to her. (laughs) You're probably not going to be here when I am. Um, (laughs) I felt really bad. I'm like, I'm sorry, Jesus. You're right. I'm never going to be a good preacher. And I sat down with God in my journal and said, God, am I... Am I out of bounds here? Like, if this was me, you, and Paul sitting in a room, and he'd be like, Hey, Chris... To live is not Jesus for you. You're not even in ministry. Like, what happened? I'm writing down, God, did I offend you in some way? Did I do something so bad that I've been disqualified from pursuing your name? And in that moment, I was reading scripture, and he kind of brought me to a pause and said, just write down what you do get to do. I get to lead a, a camp during the summer for 150 high schoolers. My volunteer team are 40 students who used to be in my last student ministry. That doesn't stink. Okay. I lead two fall retreats for high school, 40 churches in Dayton and Cincinnati. We had so many students that came this past year that we actually had to use housing at another camp and carpool students back and forth. That doesn't stink. I was in Mazatlan this past September with a group of cutting-edge innovative leaders who were all trained in special needs. We were working with a special needs orphanage, and they came home and they built packets that will work for these kids in the context of their children. Up, oh, Okay. I, the, in January, we started our first 20-something retreat where for the first time in 121's existence, we invited 19 to 29-year-olds to come spend a retreat and talk about how the church had bailed on them but that they shouldn't bail on the church. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, and by the way, yeah, every February I get to go to Monterey and pull 120 13 to 17-year-old Mexican orphans who've been abandoned into a camp retreat and tell them that God calls them sons and daughters. His Holy Spirit wants to fill them and that they have a purpose greater than what they're a part of. Oh, yeah, maybe I got the medium wrong. And I'd lost the message. And I only want to encourage you in that night this is not a pat on the back of Chris Cox because I didn't do any of that. You did. Grace Chapel has stood next to 121 for the last six years. And together we shared the gospel with over 2,000 students on two countries. Because for me and my house, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And for this church, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Well done. Well done, selfless community. What's next? There are new mediums on the horizon for us. But the message is still the same. Jesus is enough for us to change the world together. I'm in. I'm so excited that this church is too. Moving forward to live as Christ, to die as gain. Will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I pray. Praise you for the story that you've written into us in moments where the medium was so much different than where we are now, but that your message never changes, your love never fails, your redemption is never broken, your promises endure, your kingdom is now and not yet. Thank you for Grace Chapel. Thank you for your bride and what she has done in your story, in your kingdom. And I pray that for us this morning, you would remind us that you are enough. And in our weakness, we would seek you. And that you would remind us that your kingdom is forever. And that what we endure today does not define our tomorrow but that your kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus, it's through you that we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.